0: Well, good morning, Living Water. It's good to see each of you this morning. Thank you for being here. Uh, If you have your Bibles, we're in Esther chapter 6. If you have one of the Living Water Bibles, that's going to be on page 413. Uh, You could turn there, and if you wouldn't mind standing for the reading of God's Word. We have 13 verses that we're going to look at today. I'll read those in their entirety, and then we'll take a few moments to highlight a few things from the text today. So Esther chapter 6, reading from the ESV, on the night the king could not sleep, on that night the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorial deeds the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young man who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak with the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young man told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn and the horse that the king has ridden. And on whose head a royal crown is set and let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man on whom um, whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city. Proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes of the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took robes of the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of, of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai turned to the king's gate, returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wife, then his wise man, and his wife's rest said to him, "If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him." This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for another opportunity that you have provided me to proclaim your greatness through your word to your people. I confess this morning that I need your help. Please fill me with your spirit so that I may speak on your behalf. Please cleanse me from any sin and remove from from me any ungodly motives that do not honor you or serve your good purposes. I do ask that you would guide us in the path that we ought to walk in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, your son, and keep us from self-deception and the traps of the evil one. We ask these requests in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So in the fall of last year, my community group worked through a book together. Uh, It was a book that was a collection of sermons from Chinese pastors and church planters uh, who had prepared a conference to speak to their congregants. during the season of COVID to encourage them. And one of the stories in the book that we read really um, resonated with me, and I wanted to take some time to share that story with you today. The story was one from one of the church planters. His name was Brian, and this was his personal story. He said, Recently, we hosted an online theological training on gospel theology. I taught the gospel from the perspective of spiritual warfare. And I was very excited about this course because I had spent a lot of time designing and preparing for it. And I had high hopes that after the course, our co-workers' lives would be renewed and transformed. As a result, I was meticulous, careful, and attentive to keep the rhythm of the course going according to all my plans. Now, during the break between sessions, my wife raised a question and said there might be something wrong with one part of my teaching. When I heard this, I instantly became angry. I said to her, even if there is a problem, you don't have to say it now. I'm teaching the class. You should not tell me now. I tried to hold my anger and asked her to tell me when the class was over. Now, in our family, you need to know that we have a rule when it comes to conflict. We keep communicating until the conflict is resolved and we have reconciled. But at that moment, I refused to follow our family rule. So my wife said to me, there are 20 minutes of break between the sessions. We can solve the problem in five. Why won't you talk to me? Then I became very angry. Don't you see how busy I am? I need to adjust my mood before I teach this course so I can teach it well. I want to be able to equip the brothers and sisters with more theological training. But in fact, what I was really thinking was, why do you always pick on me? (laughs) And I began to lose my temper. My wife saw that I was losing my temper and she said, "I I just pointed out an issue. Why have you become angry at me? As I was talking to her, I began to yell, Are you being attacked by Satan or possessed by a demon? Why are you starting a fight with me? And in reality, I had started the fight. While we were fighting, I even threw a cup on the floor bang! And it dented the floor. To make things worse, during the break, I turned off only the audio and left the video on. So as I was fighting with my wife, a chat message came in via Zoom. It said, Pastor, please be nice to your wife. I saw your ferocious face. At that moment, I was so ashamed I saw the dent on the floor, and I wanted to find a way to hide in it. I could not continue the class because all the ugly things I had just done were seen by all the students through the camera. I don't know if you remember what Jesus said, but he said this at one point in his ministry. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And we find the reason why Jesus said this, because it had already been said in the word of God in the book of Proverbs when it read, the Lord resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so later in the book of Proverbs, we find this warning. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, as as I read this story last semester, I identified what Pastor Brian's humiliation and shame accompanied by that feeling of wanting to hide because there have been moments in my own life when pride has crept into my heart and the Lord humbled me. And as I reflect on those moments, I wish that they had never happened. So what about you? You ever been in a situation like that where you allowed your pride to get the best of you and then circumstances the Lord worked it in such a way that you realize that you were acting in a sinful way. Well, if you're like me, uh, in light of what I learned from those experiences of the past, I have no desire to ever experience those attitudes or behaviors in the future. I I don't want them to happen. And I believe that this passage that I read into your hearing today, along with other scriptures, will point us in the right direction if, as Jenny said in a prayer, we're willing to apply what we learn to our lives. So our text today, which is Esther 6, provides us with a, an example of how this truth that God opposes the proud might work out in the everyday circumstances of life. Now in the book of Esther, as you already know from when Pastor Mike played the video from the Bible Project, we're at the turning point in the story. And to help us realize that the narrator has done something with time, Uh, He or she has slowed time down to focus on two days over three chapters. Remember, up to this point, we have been covering events that have been years apart, and now we slow down to focus on these particular two days. Now, one of the observations that fascinates me about this chapter that we're looking at today is that Mordecai's life is rescued from certain death without any human working to accomplish that goal, and the reason I believe is because God was the one working and he saved Mordecai's life without his knowledge just like God had done for Israel back in the days of the exodus from Balaam now like an old tv show we might ask well what's happening we find ourselves on the night between the two private parties that Esther the queen had hosted for the king and his highest official at this point, Haman. And the narrator takes time to escort us past the royal guards into the royal chamber. And there we find the king having a bout with insomnia. Now, we're not given the reason in the text, but the translators of the Greek Old Testament wanted us to know, at least from their perspective, that they thought it was God and were implying by that, it seems, divine intervention. And I agree that God is at work. By the timing of the events in this chapter that yield results that are consistent with other scriptures that we might read, we can infer that the invisible hand of God is at work. However, as one commentator suggests, God may have worked worked through the very ordinary means of life. Perhaps King Ahasuerus could not sleep because after the banquet with his wife where she did not tell him what her request was, he could not free himself from the thought that he might have overlooked something in his reign. And like the constant beating of a drum pounding in his mind, he tossed and turned in his bed until he could bear it no longer. You ever had a night like that? You know, when, when a thought plagues you so much that as much as you want to rest and sleep, the thought will not leave you and will not let you rest. until so you get up to do something about it. And that's exactly what the king does. He calls for the records to be read. Now, if this is truly the case, as it might be, it would explain why the audiobook option is chosen of the various other forms of distraction that he might have chosen in the night. And by the words that the author chose to use in this text, it appears as though the reading had gone on for some time. It wasn't like a a one-and-done kind of idea, but it had been happening for some period of time, and likely... The reading ended in the the morning from the way the text seems to play out. And the final reading that we have that's recounted in in this text of the events is what had happened years earlier. Mordecai had provided some information to Queen Esther that had foiled an assassination attempt on the king's life. And the king realized in that moment that there had been a glaring oversight during his reign. Mordecai had not been rewarded in some way. Now, as we've uh, mentioned on the previous messages from other historical sources, it appears that the Persians took this idea of, you know, rewarding loyalty or valiant deeds very seriously because it was a way for them to encourage by rewarding those who had done these kinds of things, continued loyalty to to the throne. And so it was good for a self-serving purpose. So in light of that, we realize that the main agenda items on the the, the king's agenda for that day were one, honor Mordecai two, attend his wife's banquet in the evening. And three, which I would just infer or guess is that somewhere during the day, get some sleep. Meanwhile, Haman seemed to have had a sleepless night as well, but for a very different reason. He was working through the night. When we last left Haman uh, at the end of last week, he had decided at his wife's advice to build this wooden object on which he was going to deal with Mordecai and his life. But he needed the king's permission to move in this direction. And so driven by pride, hatred for a man who had dishonored him. And if you throw in that. Ethnic rivalry that Bongo talked about. Haman was the first official to arrive in the morning at the outer court. And he came seeking an audience with the king. But sadly for him, he had not realized what had transpired during the night with the king. He was ignorant of those events. And so for Haman, if we were to look at his agenda for the day, it went something like this one, kill Mordecai. Two, attend the queen's banquet, and three, I want to get some rest as well, but I want to have a few people bow before me before I get to that. As we look at the text, as we come to this moment where there's going to be a conversation, all of the pieces are in place for God to accomplish his purpose of resisting the proud. As before, as we see that, that King Ahasuerus seems to like to be a king who likes to work with a, a group dynamic. So he seeks advice from an official to accomplish his plans. And who's present? Probably not the person that any of us, in light of what we would that we have about the, the relationships we want in this situation, which is Haman. And just as we're reading this story and we think it's about to go south, it all turns on one question. The king asked Haman for his advice, but he does it with a particular set of words such that he does not reveal the identity of the person that he wants to honor. Verse 6, and here's where Haman's pride traps him and leads to his demise. As we mentioned, this is not a book in which we're often given access to people's internal worlds. But on this particular instance, we are. If you look at verse 6, you'll notice what Haman is thinking about himself as the king talks about honoring someone. He says in the text, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Now, before you run off and condemn Haman, he could justify this thinking on these grounds. He is second in charge. He has worn the king's signet ring, and he's been invited to two private dinners with the royal family. He might have a case for thinking this way. But unfortunately, he doesn't realize those are the only options. Those are not the only options on the table. There is another one. The king might be thinking of someone else. But Haman cannot see that other option on the table because he's been blinded by his pride. Just as Brian had been blinded by his pride And just as we are blinded by our pride. And that's what happens to any human when you take yourself and you block the view of God with yourself. Haman's pride, however, did not stop God's purposes, but instead actually fulfilled them, which are, according to the text as it plays out, to save and to honor Mordecai. So Haman shows up with this request, and he wants to exterminate Mordecai, and he has already prepared everything to do that. He just needs permission. But when the king suggests that someone can be honored, which Haman's heart is craving, which is honor, he forgets about his request and starts to fantasize about this parade that he could have for himself and all the royal splendor that can be heaped upon himself. And so as he fantasized, he fantasizes out loud, giving recommendation, not realizing in that moment he <clears throat> he's planning out Mordecai's honor parade. In our community groups, we we're working through the abide Bible study that teaches five methods of scripture engagement. So this past Thursday, one of the things I did, we covered the technique of visualization was to visit this text and for me to ask them some questions about this particular text. So I'm going to share those questions with you, and as I share those questions with you, I'm going to ask you to engage in a little bit of visualization. Try to imagine in your mind, as I ask the questions, what might be happening in the text. Here's the first question I ask. What expression do you think was on Haman's face when he offered his suggestions, thinking that it was for himself? What feelings do you think he was experiencing inside as he was meditating and ruminating over the idea of all the royal splendor that he might receive. You got that in your mind? Let's transition. What do you think was the look on his face when he realized it wasn't for him, and not just for him, but when the king said the name Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate? How do you think his feelings changed in that moment? Well, with the king's command, the door is shut and sealed on Haman's plan. And this becomes a foreshadowing of Haman's ultimate final fall, which is predicted in verses 12 and 13. See, God has a way of humbling us when we allow pride in our heart. Scholar Anthony Tomasino describes pride and points out the danger that it poses to us and others when he writes pride. An overwhelming sense of one's importance is condemned throughout the Bible as sin. It is one of the character traits that Jesus said can defile a person from within. There are essentially two reasons for the Bible's disapproval of pride. One is that pride causes people to exalt themselves over God. Two cases to illustrate this. One, Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, and then one, the prince of Tyre, who said of himself, I am a god and I sit in the seat of the gods. But another is that pride, it causes people to look down on others and treat them with contempt and abuse. And thus pride violates the two greatest commandments, to love God and to love your neighbor. As yourself. Do you see any evidence of pride in your life? Have you checked your heart lately to see if pride has found root in the soil of your heart? Have you taken time to ask the Holy Spirit to, to bring to surface what you might not be able to find on your own because pride has a way of hiding itself in our lives? If you do, my recommendation is repent. So what does God expect of us instead? I believe the apostle Peter offers us the way forward when he writes to a congregation. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Here's the point I want to focus on. clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace. the humble. Peter instructs all of us as disciples of the Lord to adopt an attitude of humility. Scholar Joel Green helps us understand humility with these words when he writes, Peter thus concerns himself and his audience with a frame of mind or pattern of thinking that belongs to persons who have done with the positioning of themselves in the world's social hierarchy in order to ensure that they are treated with appropriate esteem by their social underlings the Apostle Paul gives us a similar admonition when he wrote to the Philippians. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Renowned scholar F.F. F. Bruce brings this home by stating, there is a tendency, for example, to think one's own denomination better than others, to the point of imagining that God Himself is better pleased with it than He is pleased with others, and therefore surely better pleased with me for belonging to mine than He is with others for belonging to theirs. Concern for personal prestige and vain conceit spring from the root sin of pride. Pride should have no place in the Christian life. What characterizes the Christian is the opposite quality. Of humility, I like the way uh, Lanier Burns, another scholar, sums up after reviewing all of scripture on these topics of pride and humility, the essence of what the two, the two things are. He said this, at the most basic level, the Bible defines humility as God-centeredness and pride as self-centeredness. Now yet, with all that knowledge that I've just shared with you, I still find myself on occasion fighting against what Haman allowed to consume him. And so I ask, where is the hope for victory? I believe we find the ability to overcome prideful attitudes and behaviors through the power of the Spirit as we meditate on the gospel and we ask God for help. Because the gospel empowers us to think rightly about ourselves and others. Another scholar, through his works, Uh, Professor John Barclay makes clear that that the gospel undercuts all of the foundations upon which we appeal to exalt ourselves over others because God's gift of Christ and the salvation he provides come to us as people who are unworthy and undeserving through faith. Our ancestry, membership to an ethnic group, social standing in society, wealth, abilities, educational attainments, physical appearance, gender, eloquence of speech, personal achievements, denominational backgrounds, possessions, or any other thing that we might use to elevate the view of ourselves have no value with God when it comes to being welcomed in his people. As the scriptures tell us, every one of us has been saved by grace through faith, and this is the gift of God. What matters to God is faith in Christ. And so the ground is leveled at the feet of Jesus where we all lay prostrate and empty-handed before our Lord and our God. Because for us to receive God's gift of salvation, we all come humbly before him, confessing our sins and declaring that we are spiritually bankrupt, realizing that the only thing of value is Christ. And in grace, God works in us that which is found in the life of Christ by his Spirit. As Paul lays out the story of Jesus in Philippians 2, we see that it is humility and service. Let me draw upon another thought. In verse 10, back to our text in Esther chapter 6, we see where God exalted Mordecai when it suited his purposes. And in Philippians 2, we see how God has highly exalted the Lord Jesus above all other names in heaven, on earth or under the earth after he finished God's assigned work for him. And as we look at other texts, we'll remind that God is the one who exalts and the one who brings low. And knowing this, 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7 and James 4, 10 encourage us that God will do, for, do the same for us as believers who humble ourselves before God and wait for his divine timing. Now, why do I raise this topic or this idea of exaltation by God? And why would I bring that up in light of the topic of humility? It's because when you seek to live a humble life before God, it will not always produce in your life the kind of life that is esteemed by worldly standards. Because in the kingdom of God, as Jesus said to his disciples, greatness is not measured by your social standing in society, but is measured by your service and love of others. See, humility is how we follow in the footsteps of our Lord. Thankfully, Pastor Brian recognized his pride and humbled himself. And he went on to share this. And I'll conclude the message with this. Then I calmed down and I was still before God. My wife is a person full of grace. She looked at me and said, shall we pray together? I examined my behavior. I asked the Holy Spirit to enlighten me. And I was able to see that I wanted to build a false ego during this time of teaching so that people would think that I was great. At this theology that I was capable of teaching and that I could help others transform and renew their lives. I suddenly realized that in the process of teaching, the people were no longer human to me because I made myself the lawgiver and I would become angry at and judge anyone who dared prevent me from reaching my goal. At that moment, I did not see my wife as human. I could receive none of her opinions and felt she was simply getting in my way when she confronted me. I realized that I needed to look up to Christ with my shame. And at that moment, I looked to Christ. All the pressure I put on myself from teaching rolled off inside of me. When the break was over, I turned on the video. The session was on spiritual warfare. I did not continue to teach. But I spent the whole session resolving the conflict with my wife in front of the brothers and sisters and coworkers. I told her about the struggle within me and my building up of a false ego, and I asked her for her pardon and for her forgiveness. And in the midst of my struggle, I wanted to make myself righteous and worthy in front of others through my works. After the course concluded three days later, we collected feedback, and many said the most impressive session was the one I led on spiritual warfare where I apologized to my wife and publicly confessed my sin to God. Many commented, spiritual warfare is real, and the most moving and beneficial session for me was the moment you and your wife truly reconciled and won the victory in the gospel. I conclude with this admonishment from Peter to all of us in the room today. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and at the proper time, he will exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you let's pray heavenly father we greatly thank you for the unspeakable gift of christ by your spirit please keep our hearts from harboring pride in light of the fact that you have brought humility to light through the gospel of jesus christ as the way your people ought to live help us now as we offer our gifts communally So that we might serve you good purposes in the world. We ask these things in the precious and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.